We have left Luke. We will come back to Luke after the new year. But what we like to do here at the cross, and we made a commitment to do this every year, when we get to Christmas season, we break and we speak about the Christmas season. So Advent, you've heard of Advent, yes? You're familiar with the Advent season. Let's just talk for a second. Over there you see an Advent candle wreath, if you will. You may have grown up and were familiar with an Advent candle wreath or an Advent calendar, a focus on Advent. Advent just simply means the Latin word adventus, simply means coming. And there's two comings that we take a look at, right? The first coming, the first Advent, in the fullness of time, we'll preach that today when Jesus came. And then the second coming, we look forward with positive anticipation that Jesus is coming back. Remember, Jesus says, I'll be back. So for four weeks, we shift our focus from our normal exegetical Bible study out of Luke, and we're going to focus on messages that anchor us deeply into the biblical truth of this season. You've heard of the phrase, the reason for the season? We have flip-flopped that because you know that we teach apologetically here, and this has become very important, and we're, we, that message has been tracking, especially the message that goes out live stream. It's live streamed right now, and we teach apologetically, so we shifted the focus of this, these next four weeks. Instead of the reason for the season, we're giving you a season of reason. We're going to give you reasons that this faith is credible. This is not a blind leap. It's not something that you just hope and wish and pray would come true someday. There is a reasonable aspect to what it is that we believe. Yes, we have the inner witness and testimony of the Holy Spirit, and we don't need apologetics and historical evidence. I understand that. But when you're engaging an unbelieving, skeptical, anti-Christian world, you need some reasons. You need to be able to engage in their narrative. So that's what we're doing for four weeks. This is the very first message, the season of reason. Is it, and the reason for the first one is the reason of when. When, and we're going to go to Galatians 4, 1 to 7. So if you want to open your Bibles, it'll also be on the screen. Much of what we preach will be on the screen. So Galatians 4, 1 to 7, the reason of when. One final point as far as the candles. You look at them, you go, there's, there's three purple, there's a pink, there's a white. What's that all about? They're just symbolic. The purple, the first one, is generally, it depends on where you, you, you worship and how they want to define it, but generally the first one is the hope candle, the, the prophecy candle. It's the, it's the promise that God has made. And, and so the first one is lit this week, and then we'll do another one, purple one, next week, and we'll talk a little bit about that. All of that is just designed to shift our focus away from the world away from the way the world celebrates Christmas, the way f- away from ourselves, to really center our hearts on the Lord Jesus. And yet as we do that, I want to make sure that we are strong and solid in our faith and in understanding that there are reasons for us to believe what we believe. And this is the first one, the reason of when. Galatians 4, 1 to 7. Remember, it is indeed the most wonderful time of the year, but only if that time is rooted in the timeless wonder. So keep that in view as you work through this most wonderful time. The next four weeks. Okay? Hear now the word of God. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. So also when we were children... 
We were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. And may God add His rich blessing to His inspired and errant fallible word. Let's pray. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Speak now through this broken vessel. Speak only your words from this pulpit. It is only the power of the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God that conforms us to the image and likeness of the Son of God, and that is what we desire most. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved. Give the gift of repentance and faith. Raise them from death to life. Everyone within the sound of my voice. Make it a word of comfort for those in storm winds that are blowing. And a word of rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. All things to all people that some might be saved. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. The reason of when. Two headings underneath the reason of when. You ready? Number one, who set the time? Number one, who set the time? And then number two, why then? Why then? Who set the time and why then? A couple things before we launch out. Remember in Ecclesiastes 3.1? There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven, right? And all of that is in God's control. We'll talk more about it as we work through. But note this. This happens in the Roman context. So it's important to understand a little Roman culture. In in the Roman culture, an adopted son, an adopted child, had the same rights as a biological child. They were equal under Roman law. There was no separation. They had the same benefits, the same resources. They were were the same. That's exactly what happens here. We just read it in the passage. As the Son has received the blessing from the Father, we too now receive the same blessings. We share with Jesus all the rights to God's resources, and we claim what He has provided for us. We are the adopted children. So we want to remember that, okay? So let's launch out now into deep water, shall we? And let our nets down for a catch. Number one, who set the time? Number one, Galatians 4.4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son. Born of a woman, born under the law. The time is previously fixed by the father. So... God is the one who has set this time. Now, here's the key in in understanding everything. God lives outside of time, okay? You know that. So because God is above and beyond time, he understands all of it at once. So God orchestrates all things at once. It's hard for us to understand. We're time-bound. So it makes it difficult for us to understand this timing thing. But because God is above and beyond it, he orchestrates all events to accomplish his ultimate plan. Take a look at two things very quickly, prophecy and fulfillment. Remember, this is a season of reason. So we want to be able to be reasonable in what we believe and why we believe it. Look at the prophecy of Habakkuk 2.3. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. The Old Testament constantly talked about an appointed time. There was a time that was coming. 
So Habakkuk says that for the revelation awaits. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, it lingered for years and years in, in the minds of the Jew. 1,500 years of sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. I'll remember Dr. Bob Raymond said in seminary, Pastor, when you pastor, he didn't call me pastor then, I was a student. He said, when you pastor your church and you preach a Christmas message, tell them this. Tell them that God is a promise-keeping God. It was hard for for me to fully grasp what that meant back then, but I understand it. This is... This is the promise that God made. He made it in eternity past. We'll look at that in a moment. And he keeps his promises. He's not like us. So, so, so the Jewish nation knew the promise was going to be fulfilled. And they were waiting with eager anticipation to the coming of this promised anointed one, this Messiah. And then in the fulfillment, take a look at Mark 1.15. Jesus confirms this. What does he say? The time has come. The time has come. It's now. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus says, I'm I'm it. The time is pregnant. The pregnancy has come full term. And now out of that, I have been born. I'm here. So it's powerful. And when you think about God orchestrating all things, we could look at countless events in the Old Testament, but just throwing a few of them out. And you'll, you'll, you'll nod your head in agreement. Remember the story of Joseph? That started off really, first of all, his father did a bad thing by making him his favorite child. So the brothers got jealous and got angry. They decided to kill him, threw him in a well. Didn't leave him in a well, sold him into slavery. So it started out really horrible for Joseph. He was this promised child. He had these visions, right? God was going to use him. The worlds were going to bow down to him. And uh, so he, was, he, was, he believed that truth. But now he's sold into slavery. He's about 17. 13 years later, what happens to Joseph? He's sitting on the throne in Egypt, second in command. And he ends up saving Israel, saving his people, God's people, from what? Starvation. He's responsible for the storage program in Egypt, which gave food to all of the surrounding nations. God was orchestrating all of those events. And yet Joseph understood that. How do we know that? Remember Genesis chapter 50? What does Joseph say? What you meant for evil, God meant for... Remember Moses? Moses is delivered out of the reeds floating down the Nile. The babies, the baby boys are to be killed by the, by the, the birthing uh, mothers, the midwives. They're supposed to kill the Hebrew boys. Well, Moses isn't killed. He's put in the reeds in a basket. And Pharaoh's daughter retrieves him, delivers him from the reeds. And then Moses becomes what? The deliverer of Israel. The little Jewish girl, obviously a beautiful Jewish girl, Esther, becomes queen. And what does she do? She saves the nation Israel from certain extermination. And then we see God using the nations that surround Israel who have this natural disposition of anger and hostility for the Jew, and he uses that as judgment against his own people. So God is in control of all of these things, and so now I'll make it personal. How do you know that God is in control of everything in your life besides just nodding your head and saying, well, I know that because it's biblical? Look back in your life. You see God's handprint all over your life. You see everything that he's been, but, but life has to be lived backwards. It doesn't understand. You can't understand it looking forward. You can't understand right now when you're in the middle of it. Because often you're in the middle of a mess, yes? It's hard to understand. But when you look back, you see exactly what God was doing. You see his handprint all over every aspect of your life. God is in control. 
He is in, as R.C. Sproul said, either God is in control of all things. If there's one maverick molecule in the universe, one maverick molecule somewhere out there that we don't know anything about, you cannot trust God for anything because that maverick molecule may show up. So either God is in control of everything or he's in control of nothing. That's it. There's nothing in between. Okay? So this is this time. And then the, the Hebrew, we, we can go further back. We, we don't have to go to Genesis chapter 3. We can go further back. There's a promise that's made further back in the eternal counsel of the triune God. Check this out. Now may the God of peace, Hebrews 13, 20, who through the blood of what? The eternal covenant. There. This is, this is an eternity past where God makes this promise. He's sending his son. Brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of his sheep. This is not some random roll of the dice. That's what the unbelieving skeptic thinks. This is just a product of matter, chance, and time. We're just vibrating molecules floating around in the universe somewhere. And they believe this to be true. And they say to you, you really believe that God created all of this and you, you believe that there's a God out there? So I'm challenged by that often. And I say, well, let me ask you something. Yes, I believe that. But correct me if I'm wrong. You believe all of this came from nothing. So you have something coming from nothing and I have something coming from God. Who's unreasonable that doesn't make sense and you talk about evolution you talk about this evolutionary process that we started as this this microbe crawling out of a bubbling cesspool of amino acids billions of years ago and we evolved from from one species to another and We've come through, 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 the, through the chimpanzee. We've come through, and, and we've evolved through that in the ape and into the man. And I said, well, let me say this to you. I, I don't think that's a great process in, in evolution that you believe in. I, I don't think it's good. The chimpanzee, the monkey's got a tail. If I kept that tail on me, I'd have three hands when I come to the door. One for the key and two for the bags. I'm not happy losing the tail. I don't see any benefit to losing the tail. But now you still have monkeys in the evolutionary process who never actually evolved to... Are they the retarded monkeys? I don't understand what you believe. You don't understand what you believe. It's unreasonable what you believe. And if we did evolve, give me the tail back. I'll take a third hand any day. An extra hand is very helpful. So I don't see any benefit to that. It's unreasonable to believe what they believe. And they know that when you speak to them, especially with a heart of love. This is not unreasonable. Well, where did God come from? Well, that's the whole point. He's God. He didn't come from, he's God. He just always is. I am that I am. He's God. It's the definition of God. You don't need to go beyond that. But yours is a crazy leap from nothing to something. Not a random roll of that. Just look at a couple passages and we'll bring more hit point two. Look at, look at some, this, the lot. Look at Proverbs 6. The lot is cast into the lap. We actually have a tendency. We believe that at times. But the Bible says, no, it's every decision is from the Lord. God is controlling and orchestrating all things. This is not a random roll of the dice. Now, your life may be careening from wall to wall. Yes? Right? Sometimes we drive from, from wall to wall. But that's you driving, not God. Okay, when you take over that steering wheel, sometimes we careen from wall to wall. But 
God has a fixed plan from eternity past. And everything is working toward the good of the expansion of his kingdom, which includes you. Everything. His unfolding plan of redemption is designed to bless you for the fulfillment of his plan and purpose. So there's no... Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Always the Lord's purpose. Lamentations 3.37, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? You know that's true. God shapes the, God shapes the history of nations. God raises up nations and he takes them down. You remember the, the, the big statue in, in Daniel? You remember that? You know the four great nations? Babylon raised up and taken down. You, 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 you saw what God had done. So we, the, the Mede and Persian nation, the, the Greeks, and then the Romans, God raises and takes them down. But yet we have to remember that we, are, we have this freedom of, of, of will, this free choice. We are rational beings, yes? Angels are rational beings. So you have the freedom to choose. And yet God is in control of all of that. But no one can understand that. But as free, rational creatures to think and to choose, God still orchestrates over all of that. It's amazing. But that's God. And it's far more reasonable to think that God is doing that than that some random force and floating molecules in the universe that are banging together. Ephesians 1.11, in him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works, out, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You know, God's sovereign control over our free actions is as complete as it is over everything else. Nothing happens outside of the will and the sovereign control of God. And yet, here's what people will say to me. Listen to this. This is important, and we're going to talk a lot about it when we launch the evangelism program in the new year. But people will ask me this. Okay, Pastor, you talk about this, this, this God who's in control of all things. Then why didn't he stop that shooter in that last shooting that took place? Why didn't he, why didn't he go in and make the trigger misfire and stop the shooting? Why didn't he do that? It's a legitimate question. It's a legit. But we have to go further back. You can't, you can't stop there. Okay, he could have stopped that. And, and many times, I'm, I'm certain that he has. But you have to go further back. Why didn't he stop Eve? Why didn't he stop? There's the question, right? Unless you believe you crawled out of a bubbling cesspool of amino acids, if we came from a father and a mother and we came from our federal heads, Adam is the federal head. If we came from Adam and Eve, then you have to ask the question, why didn't he stop Eve? Because Eve had the freedom to choose. And if he stopped Eve from that choice, then she'd have been nothing more than an automatron. She'd have been a little robot. Love can't be forced or it's not love. You understand that? You in relationships today, you, 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 you can't be forced to love each other. It's not love. That doesn't work that way. Love has to be something that's freely given. So Adam and Eve had the choice to love God or to love themselves. So God could have stepped in and stopped that. He could have stepped in and stopped everything along the way. But none of us would have. We would have been, we'd have been robots. There'd have been no love. And remember, the universe was created how? Out of love. Because love existed before the universe. How do we know that? Love needs an object. And we have a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In perfect relationship, harmony, and love from beginning. From, from before creation, from eternity past, we have this love that's in this triune God. If we had a unipersonal God, you could say the universe was created out of power. Boom, power. But there's no. The universe is created out of love, which means what? God created the universe to have a loving, intimate relationship with whom? 
you. Got it? Don't miss this. That's the key, and that's why God doesn't stop the trigger. You have the freedom to choose. But that trigger will be stopped one day. And there'll be no more death, and there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more pain, there'll be none of All of this will be gone. No more cancer, it's over. Because the old will be gone, and the new will have come. That day is coming, the promise is fixed in God's eternal plan. But until that, we have the freedom to choose. And yet God is sovereignly controlling all of that. As difficult as that is sometimes to receive. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Okay? That's it. What is the prophet Isaiah saying? My thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Listen to this. Just listen to this. If you're dealing with an unbelieving skeptic, and they say to you, and they say to you, all right, listen, I, I don't understand this. I cannot come up with a single good reason for this to happen. Does that mean there is none? You're not omniscient. We don't know all things. We don't understand it all. God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. So we know that there's a good, loving God. So we know that there's something good and loving behind all of that, even though we can't understand it at times and we, we, we can't come to terms with it. We don't have to. We're not God. People say that to me all the time. Well, there's no good reason for it. Just because you can't come up with one doesn't mean there isn't. Would you have seen any good reason in Joseph being sold into slavery? None. Not until 13 years later. And now he's on the throne in Egypt and he's saving his people Israel. You look in your own life and you look back and you see God at work and you go, there was no good reason for... And then you get further away from it and you go, oh, now I see what you were doing, God. I was angry at that time. I couldn't understand anything good to come out. And now I understand. Life needs to be lived backwards. We cannot understand it. And just because you can't come up with a good reason doesn't mean there isn't one that exists. God is God and we are not. And we bow to him because we're a creature. You know, it's only in the past couple hundred years that, that, that people lack this humility to question God. It was never like that before. We knew we were small and God was great and big and, and, and mighty and powerful. We didn't question that. But not today. Everyone questions that. This is a recent phenomenon. This lack of humility before this creator God of the universe. But that's why we have to engage them with reason. Reason. Okay, number two. Why then? Now, we could give one answer and then I could give you the benediction. We do the final song and we could go home. Why then? Because God chose then. Okay? Why did things happen in your life? Because God chose those at the time. In the fullness of time, the stuff that's happened to you, you got married in the fullness of time. You had children in the fullness of time. You're single right now in the fullness of time. All of the things that have happened have happened in the fullness of time. Okay, God birthed out in the fullness of time the things that are going on in your life. Fullness of time. So that's the end of that. That's why then. But we're going to show you something that's actually more reason, that's going to give you some reasons behind why then. Why not today? Boy, today we could have spread the gospel much quicker, right? With the internet and the phones and taking pictures and all that. No, God didn't do it now. Why not 100 years before or 1,500 years before? Why not? We, we, we have what looks like to be some great reasons. So I want to show you that. 
Why then? I'm going to show you a couple things on why then, okay? Which makes your faith more reasonable when you're speaking to people during this Christmas season. Galatians 4.4 again. The Greco-Roman culture was ripe for the spread of... What was... The next three weeks, we have three more messages, right? The reason behind. So Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. We, We get that. But how is that going to take place? When Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning... Don't go back to heaven for that. We can do that, too. We can see that in, in the heaven, in the heaven, heavenly realm. But Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning every time the gospel was preached and somebody came to faith. So what's the whole point of the coming of Jesus? The spread of what? The good news. It's called evangelism. What are you called to do? What's your life supposed to be all about right now? Evangelism. It's not about you building your own little kingdom. It's about you building the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes at this perfect time where evangelism gets to explode. Hundred years earlier wouldn't have worked. Hundred years later, this was the perfect. God says this is the perfect time I have ordained in history past, in the eternal council of the triune God. This was the time Daniel brings us right to the weeks. We didn't even begin to unpack that for you. Didn't want to go down that road. But Daniel unpacks the weeks. Sixty-nine weeks, right? Times seven, but right to the triumphal entry. So you can read that in Daniel. But right now, here we are. Okay. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. There's a fullness of time for the environment of evangelism. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the Hebrews, the Greeks, and the Romans. These are three cultural contexts that have come together. It's almost like you you heard the term the perfect storm. It was like this was the perfect storm to send out the word of God to the nations. This was the perfect storm. The Hebrews, the Greeks, and the Romans. Ready? Ready? Take a look. The Hebrews. What did the Hebrews bring to the table in this perfect storm? They had the scriptures, the synagogues, and they had the Savior. The Savior they had. The scriptures were taught in the synagogues in search of a Savior. They had prayer, reading, sermon explanation. The synagogues were critical for the spread of the gospel because the temple didn't receive Jesus. And the synagogues were, were, were birthed out of the Babylonian captivity. Remember when they came back to Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed? They started setting up churches like this, churches all over the place. If you had 10 men on the registry in any particular town or any particular area, you could have a synagogue. So synagogues were everywhere. So now you had all of these places of worship that dealt with the scriptures and the promise of a savior. Well, why is that important? Why, did, why was it important that the Hebrews had this? Take a look. Matthew 4.23. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching where? In the synagogues. Now we're seeing the begin of the spread of what? The gospel. Jesus is spreading the gospel. He's received as the itinerant preacher into these synagogues preaching the good news. And make no mistake, there are captured people. So Israel, the the, the claustrophobic rule of Rome had the Jew constantly looking for the promised Messiah. So they're waiting. And every time they're a conquered, they'd have a conquered nation, and then they'd have some freedom and a conquered nation and some freedom. And they had freedom between the Greeks and a conquered, as a conquered nation. They had some freedom, and then Rome takes over. So they're waiting. And we know that that's what they're waiting for on the triumphal entry. They go from Hosanna to crucify in five days. Why? 
They wanted a military Messiah. They wanted the throne of David to be reestablished in Jerusalem. They wanted the boot of Rome to be removed from their necks, but that's not what he came to do. So Jesus is now coming to do what? The primary message of Jesus wasn't delivered through miracles. The miracles established the fact that he was the God-man. He was sent by God. Remember, Nicodemus says, nobody could do what you do. We know that you're sent of God. But what was the primary message of Jesus? Teaching. Teaching. Evangelism. Personal evangelism. Teaching. Sharing the good news. That's, that's what we're called to do. All of us. Okay? Acts 15, 21. The law of Moses had been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. We see this spread the synagogues, the scriptures, and the Savior, and the constant looking forward to this appointed time in the Old Testament. And remember, the Old Testament lay, lays the framework for the need of a Savior. What, what was that? What did the surrounding nations see going on in Israel? All of these sacrifices, 1,500 years of them. The bleeding of the lambs and, and the bloodletting over and over, and they're trying to figure, what is all this about? It was that sacrificial system that laid the framework for a need to be saved. The nations got a chance to see that. The Jewish nation understood what it was they were looking forward to. When that final sacrifice would come, the true Lamb of God, who would ultimately take away the sins of the world. So the Jewish nation, this was the perfect time for them, but they're not alone. Now we have the Greeks who had conquered culturally. Listen to why this is important. You heard of the term lingua franca. They had this common language. It was Koine Greek. It was the, 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 the trade language, if you will. But it was common, spread throughout the entire empire. So it was easy. Look at this. Athens was a great culture, and it birthed a concise language. Theological and philosophical distinctions could be made. It was easy to communicate. Alexander the Great is the one that launched that and conquered the entire known world at that time. But the Greek culture continued even under Roman rule. So they had conquered the culture. There was coherence throughout the culture for the spread of the gospel. They could speak to each other. Remember when all of the languages had been taken away? The Tower of Babel, you remember that? So now we have this common language which allows this spread of the gospel. Alexander had conquered the known world. You remember, just to give you a sense of, of, of the breadth and the depth of, of the conquering of these nations that, that Israel had to deal with. You, many of you may remember the movie Die Hard. Remember Die Hard? And Hans Gruber who had come in and they had taken over the Nakatomi uh, Plaza. And he quotes, he gives us, most people didn't know the quote, he quotes Plutarch, who was a Greek biographer, 46 AD to about 120 AD, and he quotes Plutarch when he says this, because he is just now, he's coming to conquer the world, this, this, this German terrorist. And he says this of Alexander, and he says, Alexander looked out, and when he saw the breath of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. That's the breath of the Greek culture. It had permeated everything. Even now under Roman rule, the Greeks, it was a Hellenized culture. The Greeks were in charge. Now that brings us to Rome. Rome conquered militarily. Okay? Now why was that important? 
We have this common language. We have all the... Take a look at Proverbs 21.1 first. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. The king's heart is in the hand. The Lord is in charge. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Nothing is just happening out there. You think things are just happening in the, in, in, in the nations of the world, in Washington? God is sovereignly in control over all of it. He raises up kings and he takes them down, just like nations. And if the church doesn't become the church again, that's exactly what's happening in this nation. This nation is going away. The biblical understanding of who God is, there, there is no, listen, I don't know how often you're speaking to people in the culture. That's all I'm doing. This postmodern culture, there is no frame of reference for a creator God, the fall of man, a promised redeemer, or the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't exist. So if we're going to evangelize them, we have to enter into their conversation. We have to be able to speak their language in order to bring them the good news of the gospel. So it's important that we understand that. But just know that God is even, even as bad as things may... And remember... We're only about, <laughs> you want to get a good look? Go look at some of the church buildings in England. You know what they're being used for today? We're about 20 to 30 years behind. I saw a picture of one beautiful, beautiful high steeple. It's got a rock climbing wall in it. It's used for movie theaters and coffee houses and all sorts of things. It's gone. It's disappeared. Christianity in Europe is over. And they say we're about 20 to 30 years behind. It's coming if we don't become the church. And we'll launch in January how to engage this culture and bring them back to the biblical understanding of what it means to live in this world before the face of God. Okay, the armies of Rome had conquered the known Western world, uniting in itself all of the civilized nations of its time, and, and, and they cultivated even the barbarian nations. They were all under Roman rule. So there's a couple terms you're probably familiar with. Remember the all roads lead to Rome? That wasn't just a phrase. Every road did lead to Rome. They built this immense road system. So travel was easy by road for the first time. All roads led to Rome. Then you may have heard of this phrase, the Pax Romana. That was just simply the peace, the peace of Rome. There was this uncommon peace everywhere because Rome ruled. They were in control. And if you messed with Rome, you got nailed to a cross unless you were a Roman citizen. You died a different way. But if you were one of the pagans, you got nailed to a cross and lined the streets. So Rome was in charge, and this was this perfect storm. The Jews looking for Messiah, preaching in the synagogues, the scriptures being open to the public. The Greek culture, which made it perfect to communicate theological understandings of the gospel. And now this peace and these roads that led to and from Rome. Take a look at a couple things that happened because of this. Peace was in place of tribal warfare. It, it, that was eliminated. There were, no, there were no little skirmishes anywhere. They ruled with an iron fist. The great network of roads and bridges made it easy to travel everywhere. It was an amazing time. Never before in the history of the world was there a time like this. 
they removed, I don't know if you realize the piracy that took place on the high seas. How did Paul travel a lot on his missionary journeys? On the open ocean. They removed piracy. They took it away. It didn't exist on the open ocean anymore. Ship travel became common. You weren't concerned about being hijacked because Rome ruled. And then finally, they protected its citizens from, from everything. Just one passage on that. You know how important it is to understand Roman rule and its protection? They protected the preacher who penned much of the New Testament. They protected him. Look at Acts 23, 23 to 24 and 27. There's 40 Jews that are trying, conspiring to kill Paul. They're going to put him to death. He's a dead man. But notice what happens. The Roman commander called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Provide horses for Paul. Paul? Why do they care about Paul? And take him safely to Governor Felix. Why not just let the Jews kill him? He's a Jew. Ah, 27. Watch. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he was a Roman citizen. Paul, saved by the authority, power, and Roman rule in God's sovereign plan. Wow. Luke 2, 3, and 6, Caesar always thought he was what? God? So we could say something like this, oh, thank God for Caesar, because he'd issued a decree, which if he had not issued a decree, we might have had Jesus born in a place other than Bethlehem, and then all of this would be for naught. All you got to do is find one prophecy, yes? You've been able to find one? Find one prophecy that has, has failed. Dr. Kennedy's great 333, it's an amazing thing to understand. 333 prophecies on the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. 333, just find one that doesn't add up. Just find one that, made it, that, that didn't come true, that was failed. You can't find one that doesn't exist. Now, you do have prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. That's future, yes? We're waiting for a second coming, yes? Nod your heads. So there's more prophecy yet to be fulfilled. But everything related to the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension has been completed. So now, watch what this pagan ruler does. But who's working behind the pagan ruler? Ready? Everyone went to their own town to register. Joseph went up from Nazareth. He was in Nazareth. Mary's going to give birth in Nazareth. And I'll show you why that's a problem in a moment. To Bethlehem, the town of David. They've got to go back to where they were birthed. So he's, he's, he's a... He's a child of, of the city of David, Jerusalem. He's got to go back. No, what happens? He went to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him. They weren't married, but she was pledged. But she was expecting a child. We'll talk about that in another week or two. While there, the time... Uh-oh, see the word time? The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Why is that important? Well, hundreds of years before, one of Isaiah's contemporaries... Micah writes this. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, there's another prophecy. This is a messianic prophecy. The Jews understood that to be the prophecy of the Messiah. Did Micah see a baby born in a manger? And we don't know exactly what he saw, but this is clearly messianic. He knows the promised one is coming, and he at least identifies where the child will be born. But how's the child going to get to Bethlehem? Caesar. Thank God for Caesar. Without him, we'd have had this whole thing messed up. But who's controlling Caesar? God. God. 
So Caesar issues a decree. Joseph and Mary go. The baby's born in Bethlehem. And Micah says what? But you, Bethlehem, though you are small, among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be the ruler. Out of you. He's got to come out of Bethlehem. He can't come from anywhere else. He's got to come out of Bethlehem. Out of you we become the ruler of over Israel, whose origins are from what? There. The eternality of this one from ancient times. This is the Christ child. And then we find the confirmation in Matthew 2, 5, and 6. But you, Bethlehem, there's the, the, the re-quoting of it. But you, Bethlehem, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This was the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, Christ came. He was birthed. The time was pregnant. And it was time for Jesus to come. And God ordained this time from before the foundation of the world that this would be the time. Time itself is divided by what? the birth of Christ. We have the time before and we have the time after. Even the pagan hates to acknowledge that. Jesus split time all by himself. That's how we mark it. Ah, they change the letters now and they change the word, but that doesn't matter. B, C, E, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. What is that? It's nonsense. They just keep making stuff up. It's before Christ and it's after Christ. That's all. He split time. But now we're going to go to the... We, we did the head, right? There's, this is a season of reason. You see the reasons? There'll be more every week. You feel good? Now we're going to go to the heart, right? We're going to close with the heart. Because you don't come to the scriptures just for head knowledge, right? That's not good. No good. You have a big, big old fat head. Don't want that you got to drop it from the head to the heart. Then it comes out of the heart to the hands and the feet. That's the gospel. So now we go to the heart. Ready? Don't miss this. To the Romans. Men were slaves. To the Greeks. All men were barbarians. To the Hebrews. All men were dogs. But... To the Lord Jesus Christ, men were sinners in need of a Savior. That's what separates Christ from everyone and everything else. And the passage we hold most dear to our hearts, I'm sure you have your favorite verse, but when it comes to this, is this not it? Romans. 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. We weren't barbarians. We weren't dogs. We weren't slaves to Jesus. We were simply sinners in need of the love of God in Christ Jesus to set the captives free. And that's what Christ came to do in the fullness of time. The reason of when is reasonable. God ordained it at that time. But now, this moment, 2018, is a moment of salvation. Because if Christ died for sinners and he didn't die for you, what good is that? 
And the only way for him to have died for you is for you to be able, by grace through faith, receive that promise. That while you were still a sinner, Christ went to a cross on your behalf. So now this moment in time, this moment today, because tomorrow it may be too late, tonight it may be too late. With outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, you are invited to a personal relationship with this creator God. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come now. Come not in physical effort. Come by way of the Holy Spirit, by grace through faith. God gives the gift of repentance and faith. And your heart begins to overflow with thanksgiving because you know what God in Christ has done for you. God has redeemed you. God has saved you from your sin, from Satan, death, and from hell. Eternal separation from the love of God. God has redeemed you from that to bring you into relationship with him. Will you receive that today? Will you cry out to him by grace through faith? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Pray with me. Father, right now, if there's anybody, even by way of the internet, we always expect some who are not saved. May this be a moment of salvation. It's not, it's not a special prayer that is prayed. It's not the words of a prayer. It's not the profession. It's the possession of the faith. But these words are simple. And many are uncomfortable and not sure what to say. So may they just say these words. Oh God, I heard the truth today. I heard the gospel. I realize that I can't fix it. I can't save myself. I'm a sinner separated from God. And yet you sent your son that I might have eternal life. So I understand now I simply need to trust in Christ alone. So I do that. I cry out, God be merciful to me the sinner. And I will know when I walk out of this place today that nothing will ever separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I am eternally secured because of the love of Christ. Today is a day of salvation. I thank you, O God, for your saving mercy poured down upon me this day. And Lord, for the rest of us, all who some have walked for decades, over a century... Strengthen all of us in our faith. Grow us up into Christ, but send us out to share the good news of the gospel. We are here to evangelize this world. And may we do it for the glory of the one who took our place on a cross. We ask all these things, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.